Welcome to another edition of Splitting Hairs with Max and Nikki. As usual, I'm Max. And I'm Nikki. And together we're Max Max and Nikki. On today's episode, we'll be talking about Siskel and Ebert, more specifically at the movies with Siskel and Ebert. Which is the show they broadcast for many years. Um, Yeah. From Chicago, I believe. Yes, from Chicago. Um, and we're probably going to get, ultimately, uh, we're going to talk about why we ultimately, ultimately decide en- that enjoyed, we enjoy watching enjoy that show, watching even, that though show even though we disagree many times with what they have to say. But we'll get into it. But before we do that, we have some station business. Um, on our next Vintage Basement with Max and Nikki show will be on Monday, April 16th at the same old under St. Mark's, Mark's Theater in the East Village of Manhattan, New York. 9 uh, p.m. 9 p.m. And we've got a great lineup once again. We have Michelle Buto, Mark Normand. Mark Norman. We've got Kate Willett. And Alexis Guerreros. And, and a very probable res- very, special guest. Yes, very special guest. So uh, better get your tickets ahead of time while you still can at maxandnicky.com slash vintage dash basement. Or horsetrade.info. Or simply maxandnicky.com and you'll find the appropriate links. Yes, it's going to be a very fun show. Our last show, which was um, just last week, was Ooh, very, very fun. One of our best ones, you know. I mean, I keep saying that every time, but it just, I don't know. It's a great show. It's a, it's a fun show. You're <laughs> Great environment. You will not, you will you not will, be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. Um, um, I, before we get into our main subject, though... Um, I should mention that uh, I'm getting over sickness right now. Nikki, that is. And so my voice is a little shot, um, which is why I'm kind of like, talking the I, way, Nikki, or sounding like the way I am right now. I'm talking like this. My voice might crack like some preteen, you know, bar mitzvah boy, you know, trying to read his Torah portions at his bar mitzvah. Um, and, uh, you know, not that I don't sound like that normally, but I will sound like that extra today. Um, I, I we should also mention that we haven't had a, an episode in, in the past couple of weeks because both of us have been sick and been unable to actually uh, record, you know, feel comfortable recording, talking for an hour or so straight. Um, um, yes, but uh, we both feel comfortable enough now, I suppose. Uh, We've also been busy with different shows and projects that we... We just we thought taking up our time, but it's not important to really say to get some rest instead of uh, you know talking about a certain subject for an hour or so. Anyway, did uh, you have anything to say before we get on to our main subject at hand? You know, I I guess not. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's been some big news lately. You know, um, you know that we just saw that Stormy Daniels interview on sixty Minutes. Ooh, whoops, didn't mean for that to happen. Um, and, you know, was it really revelatory? Did it show something, things that we didn't already know? I guess it was sort of revelatory, but not It was? Exciting. In what way? Oh, you know, I mean, she talks about the manner in which Trump uh, tried to get her into bed and um, tried to pursue a more long-term relationship with her while he was married. Um Oh, I I, guess but also, I didn't watch the whole interview. Nikki did. You know, sort of, it did open my eyes a little bit and ears to the idea that 
um, Trump's lawyer sort of paying uh, Stormy Daniels with hush money um, was potentially illegal campaign contributions in the sense that essentially uh, the lawyer paying for this is like him paying, giving money to the Trump campaign to pay off somebody, you know, and that would be illegal. Um, So that was interesting. Hey, you know what? At this point, whatever we can do to get this guy out of office, you know, I mean, it is kind of a scary thought to have a president, Mike Pence. Um, So I'm not sure which would be better, actually. I mean, in all honesty, Mike Pence is really, really a a very extreme right-wing conservative politician. And he's, I mean, he's just no good. So I don't know. Very uh, anti-gay marriage. I mean, you should watch clips. Uh, I was watching the John Oliver show a few days ago, and um, they were showing clips of uh, Mike Pence's radio show that he had in the 90s before he was a politician. And he was, it was as if he was some kind of, you know, Rush Limbaugh type or even more like a Glenn Beck type of DJ. But... Well, hasn't Glenn, Glenn Beck, hasn't he... He doesn't support si- Trump, though. Right, since he he's more recently kind of, I think, admitted to his him being wrong about certain things. I well, think, I don't right? know, but... Something like he's that. He's like a Rush Limbaugh type or um, Alex, an Alex Jones type, if you will. Right, Alex Jones. Um, where he's just so extreme, and, you know, he supported conversion, conversion therapy in the therapy. past. Yeah. So he's just a bad guy, I think, you know. It's amazing, you know, his his daughter was on on The View recently and I just I couldn't even watch the clip because I was like, ugh, you got Meghan McCain and this daughter of Mike Pence. It's almost like watching Fox News and it's just like it's so abhorrent that you can't even stomach watching it, you know. It's just really it's like a cringe-worthy it's, thing. It's so watch. cringe-worthy that you just you don't want to believe that people like this exist in our world, you know, but they do, um, unfortunately. And, you know, it's the way of the world, I guess. Um, but I suppose uh, that's enough of that. There was um, also the major gun, uh, you know, rally, rally, the march against uh, um, guns and march for ag- gun march control. against gun rally, you should say. March against guns rally. Or, uh, right. So, or, or just a march against gun control or sorry, a march for gun control. Right. Right. Um, and, uh, that's kind of a good thing, you know I mean? Or it's It's not kind of a good thing. It's a great thing. thing. You know, it's, I think more than ever now are people really showing their support for stricter gun control laws. And I was looking at a poll recently that was done by Fox news. It's uh, like, they, Fox News even reported this, 90-something percent of the American population support... Well, that took the poll. Yeah. Yeah, Fox News took the poll, which is obviously a right-wing-leaning station, very right-wing-leaning station. Um, And they reported that 90-something percent of people, the population, support stricter gun control laws. And, um, And it said that, like, 60... 
something percent supported a ban on all assault, assault weapons, which was pretty mm-hmm. astounding considering it was Fox News that reported that. So that's that's a good sign that there's people enough, are ready people, for a there's change. a majority of people in this country that don't want these uh, AR-15s or these automatic semi-automatic automatic weapons out there. Um, me personally, I don't want any guns out there. Um, I think the Second Amendment is kind of bogus, to be honest. And well, I think, I think that- it's I think it's a problem actually that people even want guns out there. There are people that feel they need a gun, and I that's a debatable thing. Obviously, and I, I, all of this is debatable, I should say. But uh, even but even left leaning people feel they need a gun in a way, or some of them do. When you say you want guns out there, that's a problem to me, you know? I mean, you shouldn't want... I mean, anyway, we've talked about this at length. Um, uh, listen to our other podcast. But essentially, it. we believe that wanting guns is kind of sadistic, and um, it's it's disturbing, actually, to not... Well, I don't know about... It's not necessarily sadistic, but it is... Uh, it's sadistic to kind of... It's a disturbing um, thought, though. It's a disturbing thought, but it is sadistic. The NRA is kind of a sadistic organization. Sadistic I if you're harming people or harming, uh, not people, but or no, harming others. It's sadistic. Animals it's too, the sadistic so. in the sense that they're sort of, uh, you know, they're, they're louding or sort of worshiping this weapon that has one, you know, one purpose, which is to kill. I know, That's but it, it, it's sadistic if they're lauding the killing part of it, you know? Well, what what's the point of them otherwise? Target practice and stuff like I that. I know, but that's the dumbest argument ever because obviously they can do target practice with BB guns or paintball guns, something that doesn't actually kill. That's a dumb argument. If, uh, if anybody said, oh, we like to do target practice, well, why do it with a real gun? Why not just do with archery? You know, I agree. Well, I mean, a gun's a little bit of a different thing, but uh, I agree. BB uh, gun, air pellet gun, something that doesn't actually kill. You know, I agree. Well, I guess yeah, I suppose you're right. It is so. It is actually sadistic to sort of uh, push, but not just push, but to take pleasure in discussing guns, things that actually kill. Yeah, I, it's a weird thing to say. To call that action sadistic, though, if we're talking, to, we're getting really into the minutia of this, to be discussing it is not actually sadistic. Wait, sadistic? Am I saying that right? It is sadistic, right? Yeah. That's the word. Um, it's, that's a little weird to be saying that is sadistic. It's sadistic if they're getting pleasure from actually harming others you know that that's what's sadistic i don't think you're, you're not using that in the right context necessarily i know but i feel like there's no other reason to uh i get what you're saying pleasure but in I'm, discussing it i'm just saying without without uh I know, without talking Nikki, about the I, the what the weapon can do and what the weapon like talking about what the weapon can do is how fast it can shoot or what how how many rounds it can shoot and talking about that is ultimately with the the intention that it's going to kill something with that many rounds or that fast you know and that's yes sadistic. okay but the way you were using it 
seemed a little weird. It didn't quite seem correctly used. used. I don't know, man. I think you're you're arguing for the you're wrong, arguing the wrong thing right now. You know. No, I'm not arguing the wrong thing. I'm just arguing your correct usage of the word. Actually, I, I, I mean you you're what, right. I think you know what I mean. I, I do know what you mean, but it's just uh, because somebody could be discussing the guns and and they're not talking about ultimately the usage for killing something. You know, Max. It, I know, but it seems weird to say that. You I know? think that the NRA, though, is a sadistic organization in the sense that why is there an organization for guns? There's like... I, but that doesn't... See, what you just said, your reason for using sadistic just not, now wasn't you didn't, correct. You didn't, you didn't, you're not understanding. Is the reason, Their reason for having an organization is because they enjoy talking about guns and what they can do, and that's, sadistic, that, that's kind of sadistic, I think. Do you see what I'm saying? Because they like to, they enjoy talking about something that inflicts pain and suffering. Okay, if they were talking about them enjoying, they enjoy talking about the pleasure that they receive from these weapons, essentially. Sort of, it, it would make more sense if they were getting pleasure from the harm that it was causing. You understand what I'm saying? They are getting pleasure from that. No, they're not getting pleasure from the harm that they're causing. Or well, may, they may be, actually. Maybe what, they what, are. I mean, people that are part of the NRA that report them, they, that are reported, who are reportedly, you know, sane or mentally healthy, they will say that they use guns for hunting purposes. That's the main argument for guns, basically. Hunting. Um... And they are receiving pleasure from killing, the act of killing. Okay, in that context. But what you just said was, uh, uh, anyway. Uh, They're indirectly. Do you understand what I'm saying? I do, but I think you're not opening your mind to no, no, what I'm trying to say. I am, I am open. I, I understand. Okay, fully, I'm aware of this. They're, I'm just saying that you're not quite understanding what I'm saying. They're indirectly sadistic. Okay, fair enough. Okay, now enough about guns because the whole subject is sort of regressive, you know? I mean, just to even support the existence of guns is, is regressive, in my opinion. Um, so let's move on to something more progressive, more progressive, and that's talking about at the movies with Siskel and Hebert. Um, how is that progressive? Well, I think... Uh, if everybody had a little bit more at the movies in their life, perhaps the world would be a better place and it would progress. I don't know. Well, I mean, you know, that's a that's another argument or that could be had. Anybody who would have discussions like the ones that were had on on at the movies. I will say they did have some discussions about things in a progressive way, actually, uh, especially maybe uh, at the turn of the decade from the 70s to the 80s when a lot of... <laughs> Uh, horror movie slasher movies came out and they were talking about the violence towards women and they had very progressive ideas of of their attitudes towards the treatment uh, uh, against women um, and they, they thought a lot of these slasher movies depicted women in a uh, in a 
terrible light, you know, they were always getting killed and not, uh, and seemed powerless often. And they wanted a, a more progressive uh, depiction of women in the movies. Especially you know? when the 80s was really a decade of kind of about empowering women, actually. No, no. Yes, yes. That's when you really had women no. uh, take charge in, in, in business uh, I, I think you're actually wrong on a lot of fronts on that, actually. In fact, the women... The 80s went back to a formal way of the way women are depicted, especially in movies. Haven't you ever seen that movie with Diane Keene and Harold Ramis where Diane Keene becomes yeah, like I know, but it's the not, head of her own business? It's not and, always the, the way... Or like Working Girl. Working Girl is a perfect example. I know, okay, that a lot of people use that as an argument. Okay, and then what happens in the end? Harrison Ford, what happens in the end? It, she needs Harrison Ford in the end to help her out or something like that. You know, it's not by her own. It's something like, how, is that how working working girls about? I, I haven't seen that in I years. Just feel actually, like, I'll I feel give you like an example. This, I'll give you I feel an example. like the eighties were uh, I get, uh, sort of a direct no, counter to the seventies, which were really kind of no. You're absolutely wrong. Seventies were about female empowerment. That's when the women's liberation haven't movement. Haven't you came. ever female empowerment, man? Nikki, that but you don't you understand that women. Uh, uh, like the idea of a modern woman was starting to happen in the late sixties, and then in the seventies was the women's uh, liberation. Uh, what is it called? Uh, am I getting that name right? The, I don't know. The, yeah. Anyway, that's when you had the, the women's liberation movement of the nineteen seventies. That was a big thing, and I'll give you an example of the contrast that you'll see. I mean, this was the turn of the eighties, and it. I mean, turn from the seventies to the eighties, and I still feel like you were getting. Uh, some uh, overlap there, but an example is in Indiana Jones one, which is 1981. So it's still feeling the the weight of the 70s there. The female uh, part in that, the main female part, is very empowering, and uh, uh, she kind of can go toe to toe in a way with Indiana Jones um, and be adventurous. And then in part two, the woman is like fearful and uh a lot more gingerly and uh she's she's daintier and and she's not able to handle the adventure actually as much um another example is romancing the stone uh she really is trying to she needs this man in her life in the end to like help save her you know i'll counter your argument in the 70s star wars came out and princess leia in the first one, seems more helpless, but by the third one, which is tick, which was made in the eighties, I don't think she's helpless. She's not helpless in Star Wars one. This is, she, in fact, it's upon her that she needs. No, she's like Obi Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. That but, yeah, I know Obi Wan Kenobi is because he's a Jedi. He's like his no old guy. Listen, she in, takes in, charge. She ends up taking charge. She like no Max. Trust me. In the third one, she really takes charge of her own fate. That's. I'll bring it all around. This is what Siskel and Ebert were talking about when they were discussing Star Wars, actually. They were talking about how, you know, like, basically, they thought that... Some fans thought that Princess Leia seemed weak in the first one. So what did he do? What did George Lucas do? He made a change to Princess Leia, her look, and sort of as being, like, sort of a kind of more homely looking. She kind of looked more homely and then she kind of was more empowered. She looked homelier. 
The third one? What are you talking about? The third one is when she has her very sexy outfit that she has. But I would argue that for some, that would make them feel more empowered, I guess, you know? I know, but for a lot of people, that image, that depiction... She becomes more of the one that saves the others, actually, in by the third one, you know? I don't remember, um, actually, to be honest. I mean, Luke Skywalker ends up saving everyone in the end, but, you know, it's really about him in the end. But, um, anyway. Or is it? I, God, it's been a while since I've seen these movies. But in any event, I uh, mean... Anyway, so we're getting way off subject here. Siskel and Ebert. I mean, the depiction of her in the third one is a much more vulnerable pig depiction, you know? Okay. But uh, we're getting way off subject. Uh, the point is... Siskel and Ebert. They can't be very progressive in their talk. No, okay, we didn't even really talk about... We didn't preface Siskel and Ebert. So at the movies was the show that they had for uh, maybe like 30 years. 30, it started... 30, it's first No, not 30 years. 20, 20 plus years. It started not as at the movies, but it started as a public television show. Um it was just called Siskel and Ebert, I think, or something like that. Something like that. And uh, they just talked about movies. Why was- Siskel and Ebert, by the way? Because Roger Ebert was the film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times. Sun-Times. And Siskel was the film critic for the Chicago Tribune. And they just decided to, uh, you know, form a show where they both... And they often had contrasting views on movies. Um, and, I, and people, I think, liked that uh, contrast uh, watching that. But I've, I will say, if you watch the earlier episodes, it is kind of a little bit boring, I guess, kind of to watch. But it's kind of, it's so interesting, though, uh, to see their views not, on movies. They're not very um, charismatic in those earlier. Right, and they become a little more. They become more charismatic, but also and they more take, articulate. Actually, and more well, and more articulate. But I think they also become. Well, that's not necessarily true. You know, I think even before the show, uh, Roger Ebert had w- already won. Max, in writing, though, they were. A, a Pulitzer Max, Prize. in writing. I think they became more articulate uh, in in person. Right. Well, Roger, just a side note, is Roger Ebert won a Pulitzer Prize for his criticism. And I'm not talking about just being, uh, you know, a movie reviewer He for his film criticism, which is film analysis, you know, essentially. Okay, nobody cares. No, people care about that because I got to make the distinction because some people, when they think of criticism, they just think of, oh, this person rated this movie this, like a Rotten Tomatoes type of thing. But real film criticism talks about the the technical and the uh, theoretical aspects of film and and the underlying meanings behind film. Really all just analyzing all aspects of film. Right. Well, like I said, film analysis. Um, you know, and, and its way, effect on, way, on audience. The way they got together was that uh, Roger Ebert had been uh, reviewing for the so Chicago sometimes for a year, and then uh, Gene Siskel, he had been a recent graduate of Yale, and he came in and he was supposed to be this hot shot re- movie reviewer who graduated from Yale, and he started working at the Chicago Tribune. What does that mean? A hot shot review? I don't it's know. So weird. I don't even know but what that means. Basically, they were. How old is he? I mean, like he he's a couple from, he's was, a couple years younger than uh, I know, but he got his Roger. MFA in it or something at I, Yale. I don't. I don't know. That. It must have been a master's. Um, when they started that show, he was already almost thirty. But no, 
they didn't start the show right away. Oh, That's okay. not what I'm saying, Max. Okay. Um, so they were reviewing, and then they be, they were kind of rivals at first. Actually, Roger Ebert says he didn't like Gene Siskel at first. Um, but then they thought it was a good idea to have a show where they kind of bickered with each other and argued over their opinions on films. Um, and it eventually evolved into At The Movies when it was syndicated. It became At The Movies. and uh, Right, I it think it's always... A, it's since. And then it became a very popular show, and they became the most popular movie, movie critics, critics of all time. Actually, and I think I a big say. part of that was their uh, their reviewing system became very popular, which is the thumbs up, thumbs down thing, which comes from you know the Roman uh, right Romans. You know the, the emperor would give a thumbs well, up or thumbs down. No, well the thing is, um, they talk about how the thumbs up system, where in in the Roman times for gladiators, thumbs up meant to kill. Right. Um, and so thumbs down meant to not kill, which is kind of like the opposite of what their rating system was. And so Roger Ebert says he came up with the idea of the thumbs up, thumbs down. And Gene Siskel is like, but I came up with the idea of having two thumbs up. Um, <laughs> well, cause Roger Ebert wanted to do like one thumb up, two thumbs up, three, th- three thumbs up, four thumbs up, five thumbs, up. like as if it were stars, you know? Oh, but, I see. Gene Siskel was like, no, it should be like one thumb up for each of us, you know, like, you know, two thumbs up. I see, I see. So it was a real collaborative thing there. And to be honest, two thumbs up, that's a real, like, you know, that's uh, a genuine sort of seal of approval from Siskel and and Ebert. Well, obviously it comes from the Roman thing, but also... The Fonz. I guess that comes... I, mean, I guess thumbs up. I mean, that's a thing that's ubiquitous now. You know, I mean, we see that but giving somebody up. a thumbs up is a good thing. Well, you know, well like, the Fonz. You I know, guess it comes from the Romans. The Fonz, though, he's like, hey, and he's got two thumbs up. You know. <laughs> well, there's that, but I'm sure you know that comes from something too. You know. But um, anyway, uh, so yeah, they had the show, and they really became such a pot. If if both of them, you know, rated a film as good then that was very good for a movie you know um right um but, but, but enough I'll, about the history i guess enough about their history but oh, one side note history historical fact about roger ebert because this will come up later on is roger ebert was helping produce produce or he wrote he co-wrote he the co-wrote screenplay the screenplay for beyond the valley, beyond of, the valley of, the of the dolls which is kind of like a kind of a smut film it's you know it's a it's like a sexploitation sexploitation film uh by russ meyer russ meyer or myers meyer meyer uh and it you might think well what does this guy have i mean why should we believe this guy that's writing movies uh you know about why why should we believe the reputation of this guy roger ebert on on what he thinks about movies when he wrote the screenplay to you know, beyond the Valley of he the Dolls. He claims it's a com- com- comedic film, but... Well, in any event, it's like, I mean, come on. Uh, but, you know, that's a different thing. Criticism, people can be very articulate and very... I mean, they were very knowledgeable about film, that's for sure. Um, but, you know, at the same time, people grow in their careers as well. Uh, so they perhaps they also became more knowledgeable about film as they were doing the show as well, you know? So, um, it's an interesting aspect too about 
artists, I mean, not just criticism, not just critics, but also artists in general, you know, and, and trusting their knowledge about things, you know. So, all right, let's get into the juicy details. First of all, I, I want to say that Siskel and Ebert, at least one of them was wrong often, like, in, if what, Nick, by the, Nick, what Nicky means by saying that, what, what Nicky means is that uh, he doesn't mean that at least one specifically was wrong. He means uh, at least one of them was wrong often. Right. Wait, but it sounds like you're saying. No, no, Max, I get it. I think they understand now that I'm not, it wasn't either Gene or, Eber, or, or, or Roger that was wrong more times than others. Uh, it was that. At least one of them was wrong. In your opinion? In my opinion, very often. And sometimes it was both of them that were very wrong very often. Um, uh, a good example, is actually, is when... The of Big Lebowski. Well, no, I'll give you even a better example. Is when the show kind of was starting out, uh, Gene Siskel notoriously gave a bad review to Taxi Driver, which is considered by many one of the best films of all time, if not the best film of all time. And... I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find somebody that doesn't think that's a great film. Um, and Gene Siskel gave it a bad re- it gave it a thumbs down. Uh, and Roger Ebert was like, I, I couldn't... Do- I mean, Roger Ebert was correct in what he was saying, or at least in our opinion, uh, in saying that. I, I can't believe okay, you Okay, okay, but... You. Uh, that's a good example of one. But, you know, another notorious example is when Roger Ebert said that full metal jacket that he gave full metal jacket a thumbs down and Gene Siskel couldn't believe it. And he gave it a re- resounding thumbs up. He's like, how could you do that when you gave Benji the hunted a thumbs up, you know, <laughs> he gave, so that was a big argument that ensued. And that was like a, a notorious argument between them. So if we disagree with them a lot, then why do we enjoy watching it? I'll tell you why, because we enjoy watching people analyze film and even at a deeper level even in a deeper level just analyzing anything and just over and discussing you know their analysis about anything and that's really cool we like doing that ourselves and it's well this is what the show is about really you know uh and that's just it's a fun thing i guess because uh it just is you know Um, it is because and i would argue that because it's stimulating for it gets your mind going when you're seeing just people discuss something that and it makes you it, think about things in a different light that right. you may have not thought about it before right you know? and I guess it just it's stimulating because it also can maybe um, reassure your argument for liking something and you can also start thinking about why you liked the film and they didn't it's just a stimulating to watch discussions on uh, on analysis you know of anything or really. it could spark if, um, if it's interesting it you could know? spark interest in a film you haven't seen before or it could spark uh, an immediate uh, negative reaction to their review because you like a movie so much you know um, you know an example another example would be the big Lebowski they both gave it a thumbs down and they, that's one of my favorite comedies one of, of my all favorite time. comedies of all time one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies of all time and they Review. Gene Siskel said something about the the scene where um, the dude is 
flying and he's like on an, a trip it's on an LST trip or something like and that. he's like flying over the bowling alley and stuff like that I, it might and be an LST like, actually somebody I think that he was slipped something in, in, in his drink or something yeah he slipped that. something and he talks about how he's like I don't get this was this supposed to be some kind of reference to Superman or something and I w- I'm thinking to myself what do you mean Superman like like it's not even about that it's just like a surreal Vis- visceral experience that you shouldn't visual be, experience visual and visceral experience that you shouldn't be trying to this is sometimes the they're the over analyzing the wrong thing about over analyzing where sometimes you have to accept things just for what it is on what the, it is on the thing for face value face value not not try to go into deeper because sometimes things are meant to be just experienced you know right and uh it's like clearly he's having a trip. He's on a trip, you know. And weird things are going to happen when you're on a trip. That's the idea of it. And they right. wanted, and the Coen Brothers wanted to sort of, and it's kind of funny to see that on screen what it's, it, his trip is like. You I know, know in, a, in a kind of funny, amusing kind right, of way, right? Because it's also a trip through the eyes of the dude who is an interesting character, you know, and who is a frequent bowler, you know, and he's a bowler, you know, and that's an interesting. Uh, and a funny thing to see, you know, him going on, being on a trip, because he's also always seemingly stoned anyway, you know? But I think um, over the years, I mean, Gene Siskel died before this really happened, but um, Roger Ebert witnessed the growing popularity of The Big Lebowski, and I think he reassessed the movie later on. Yeah, that's... So clearly, oftentimes, even though, as we said, we do enjoy watching it, they're clearly uh, off the mark often, and they also just don't seem to really be uh, in tune to with what's going on. They're kind of sometimes out of touch with what was, what's happening. But they do reassess later. I'm sure, I think even maybe in a later episode, I'm not sure, maybe, I think Gene Siskel maybe reassessed the ta- you know, taxi driver later on and realized that he might have been wrong about that. I Roger know Ebert, I've done that. Roger in- Ebert is, was a little stubborn in that he never took back any reviews that he gave um, in the sense that he said, you know, that I don't regret any reviews I made because that's the way I felt about the movie at the time that I saw it, which I kind of get what he means, but I think it, it surely doesn't mean that you can't change your mind about something. Right. I even can change my, it's good to change your, you, you should be, I mean, part of the reason of watching film reviews and reviewers is to maybe uh, it help uh, it maybe it, it can maybe help form your or reform your judgment of the film. Maybe you can decide after seeing their review. Maybe you can change your opinion of it. But it's and not, you should be open minded to changing your opinion of something if somebody has a good point about it. Maybe you can think, oh, maybe they're they're right. But actually it's about not that. just about anybody's review. It is about Siskel and Ebert's reviews because that's what's engaging. You know, that's the most engaging. Right. Right. Even though. I actually do for films that are important to me and films that are not that important to me. I do often read reviews of a lot of movie critics, even from today. And I don't agree with a lot of them, but it is stimulating on some level again, to reassure or reinforce my own opinions about, well, the, it's not about just, the film it's or, not just... or to, you know, actually look at something in a light that I haven't before, you know, um, with the movie La La Land, which we've talked about a lot before, there were some things 
I we really I analyze that film, and there's some things that I read in reviews which I was like, I didn't even realize that before. That's how much is in the film that I was like, oh wow, that's great that that but even was in if the film even too. if the review is as we said off the mark and they're not right, it there is something still stimulating, uh, it, because it gets your mind active and you thinking about their criticism. You know that it's they're discussing something that is important to you and uh, it's stimulating your mind in that way, you know? Um, you know, it's interesting that Gene Siskel, he died um, before some of these sort of movies that weren't popular at the time of their initial release became popular on video or DVD, such as The Big Lebowski, but also Shawshank Redemption, which, you know, they both gave very glowing reviews of when it came out, but it wasn't as popular of a movie when it came out. But over the past couple decades, Shawshank Redemption has become number one on IMDb's uh, best movies of all time list. Um, it's often, you know, reportedly by many people, their favorite film of all time. Um, and it is my in my top five favorite films of all time, too. Um because it is so good. And Roger Ebert actually did look at the movie again in like 2010. And he tried to get an under better understanding of why that movie has become so popular. Um, even though he really enjoyed it the first time around. And he talks about how like, you know, even though there's plot holes in it and there are plot holes in that movie, he talks about how those plot holes really pale in comparison to what the movie is really about, you know? Um, and, you know, it is about this friendship, you know, and the evolution of this friendship within sort of the prison system. And, but I guess it's not even just about being in the prison system. It is about the evolution of a friendship. And uh, the the end of the movie is such a great payoff because you really see the Spoil evolution. Spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. So you really see the evolution of this friendship. And I think people really can... Any, it's such a universal uh, topic, friendship, that right. anybody can relate to that movie. And I think, and I think Roger Ebert talks about why that that's kind of why people like that movie so much because anybody can relate to it. Uh, the idea of friendship, right, 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 um, right, because it's a platonic relationship, you know, right. Um, but so. So we discussed why it's interesting to watch, but it's not just uh, interesting to watch them discuss film because you can say that about uh, any other, you know, critic that might have a TV show uh, that's devoted to film criticism, but specifically them too, because it's actually fun. To, it's funny to see them debate actually about films. They are they, very they, stubborn. They, they have very stubborn kind of very personalities. Stubborn. They have very stubborn personalities and, uh, can off yeah can often be very smarmy and they're um, very uh they're kind of quirky guys and sort of they're just very highfalutin in a lot of ways sometimes yeah and, and it can be uh it it's funny to see that you know on TV you know it's almost like watching Frasier you know and seeing Niles and Frasier debate something you right. know uh they're stubborn and and they're you know almost pretentious about something you know and uh and it's funny to watch that, you know? Um, but there's also something 
enjoyable. They, label, they, also, they also are funny too, actually at have, times. They, you know, they kind of are very comedic and they make good jokes uh, at each other's expense. Actually. And what's funny about it is they're not laughing at it too, or not usually. They're done in a sort of very kind of neutral tone, almost like a news anchor type type of tone. Um, and a very uh, so almost it's almost like they're committed to staying into this character, this persona that they portray on this show. And there's nevertheless, it's very dry in a way, and I think that's funny. Right. I also, you know, have been recently watching um, their interviews on Johnny Carson and Howard Stern, and um, it's well, their interviews on Howard Stern are funny because Howard Stern, he's mean about it, but he does like make fun of uh, Roger Ebert's weight. Every time he's on, um, it is funny. I guess. But he always like weighs him. Actually, he always makes him get on a scale. I mean, it's so degrading um, for but him. But it's interesting to you see that. Sport about it. It's interesting to see that Gene Siskel really defends Roger Ebert because I think he knows that that's a sensitive subject for Roger Ebert, and it really kind of shows that they the actually were that they friends. were actually friends. And they were probably actually really, really close friends. Um, he even says at one point. Um, that or Gene Siskel says that his daughter was a flower girl at Roger Ebert's wedding, actually. So I think they were that close that his daughter was a flower girl at his wedding. And that's right, right, right. right. Um, you know, so it no matter what Roger Ebert showed in his exterior when after the passing of Gene Siskel, um, because he seemed to go right away into trying to find a new rep- uh, replacement for Gene Siskel. Right, and, you know, um, but, what do you think of Roper as a replacement? I think he's a pretty good replacement, but I just no, think... No, I think Roper was a, a bad reviewer overall. He gave too many... I hate to say it, but he gave too many good reviews, actually, bad I know, movies. but as far as... Uh, it definitely did not as have As far as somebody stand- standing his ground, I guess. Right, I think as far as somebody standing his ground, I think he was a fairly good replacement, but it really did not... Uh, there was something in that dynamic between Siskel and Ebert. I think because, you know, they had grown, their reputations had grown together, you know, and so there was always a little bit more of a, uh, a, a little bit of a dynamic. The dynamic between Ru- where e- both Ebert their, and Rober were their, not, it was not their, exactly equal, you right, know. The Siskel and Ebert reviews were uh, as respected they were measured equally. Measured equally. Um, Although I will say because Gene Siskel passed away uh, before Roger Ebert did, I think Roger Ebert has become more synonymous with a film critic or the the ultimate film critic than Gene Siskel has, you know? Well, I think also um, he had a little bit more clout because he also did win a Pulitzer Prize for film criticism. Right. Um now, sorry, I was. Um, but yeah, I mean, Roger Ebert, he always kind of held that over Gene Siskel that he won a Pulitzer Prize. But Gene Siskel, what he had on over him was that he was on CBS Morning News. That was his other job. Oh, really? He and was on so, CBS Morning. Yeah, News? and so as talk what? about. As a film reviewer, in the same oh, way really? that Gene Shalit was a, a film reviewer on the Today Show. Oh, okay. And, um, you know, even Howard Stern asks how much they each of them makes and who makes more. And they were, like, being very honest about the, the fact that they probably both made around the same amount of money. 
Well, I think they. Uh, what's also fun about their dynamic is that they are st- that the stubbornness is uh, fun to watch. You know, them being staunch in their uh, in their reviews and they're unyielding. I think that's. Um, I think maybe when you are a critic, it, it might be important to be like that. I think uh, well, otherwise, people won't have confidence in what you have to say. I think, it's nice. You know? It's fun to watch a good debate and you need somebody who is committed to the debate and committed to their side. And right. Otherwise you, you won't place any faith in what they have to say. I think, uh, with that said though, you could also argue the opposite the in, in saying that, Oh, this person is not open-minded and therefore I actually don't trust what he has to say. Well, actually saw but one. I think, I think maybe in the long run, I think maybe because you could always change your mind later on, but I think in the moment, you do want to see somebody that's not quavering, I think. You know? Well, I did see one uh, episode where they reviewed um, the movie Broken Arrow, and Roger Ebert, or Siskel at first gave it a moderate thumbs up, and Roger Ebert gave it a thumbs down and pointed out all the problems. And by the end of their review, Gene Siskel was like, you know what, I don't think I've ever done this before, but... I'm going to turn my thumb the other way. I agree. This shouldn't get a thumbs up. He gave it a thumbs down by That's the end of the review. And he's like, now I want you, then he's like, now I want you to take back your thumbs up of kindergarten, t- or not kindergarten, but cop and a half. He's like, you can't tell me that you thought that was actually a good movie, you know? Um, and what did he were- Roger was like, for what it was trying to accomplish, I thought it was a good movie. Um, and that is a, an interesting point, by the way, is, and they do mention in this their show, I, I believe, is that we, uh, in judging movies, movies that are made with the greatest care, we tend to judge harsher, actually, you know? We, actually, this is something Gene Sinsko points so, out in, in one of their episodes from the 70s. Right. Uh, and movies that we, uh, that are just popcorn movies that uh, aren't meant to be taking that seriously we judge in a, a, in a lighter way i mean we don't we say and we give it a, oh, we hey, give it an easier pass we give get an easier pass like uh, i'll give you an example is um the latest star wars that came out uh there are many problems with it if you're actually judging it on the basis of it being an actually a good movie it's not but when i watched it i went in knowing based on the last movie of it last movie in the series I saw, I always just thought, okay, there's a lot of things, bad things I'm expecting in this movie. The bar is very low here for me. And I went in watching it that way and I enjoyed the movie for that reason. So in that sense, I might have given it a thumbs up because uh, for what it is, I enjoyed it. Uh, but if it were actually a good movie, if, if I were to say it's actually a good movie, no, it's not. Uh, but did I, but the thing is, with a movie like Shawshank Redemption, where there's a, the greatest amount of care given to it, uh, I think it actually, I will give it a thumbs up, not only because I enjoyed it, but also because it actually is a good movie. Well, it's, you know, Gene Siskel mentions but, this idea, this concept, when, when they're reviewing One Food of the Cuckoo's Nest, because they were saying... Right, exactly. They were talking about how it is a really good movie, but they were pointing out the the, the small problems with it. And they were talking about you know, we only point out these small problems because we really do care about this movie and we think it is really good. But And that's why it's important to, 
you know, pick apart sort of the smaller problems with it because it's important with a film of that caliber to do that. Right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, which I think is kind of true to a degree, you know? It is, but, I, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't agree with a lot of what they had to say, actually, in their specific problems, I think. Right, I think overall, I mean, that is in my, one of my top it's five films of all one time. One of the best movies of all time. I mean, it really um, is... It's just, it's got all the emotions in it, especially at the end. It's like, run right after the other. You're filled with different emotions, like sadness, uh, happiness. Um, it's funny in a way at the end too, you know? It's not funny at the end. It's funny throughout. No, but I'm I talking mean, about in that last scene, there's this amalgamation of emotions that you go through, right at one right after the other. It's really an interesting thing that I don't think I've... I've seen in any movie, other movie. Um, there's one last thing I want to talk about before we end this episode, and that's um, the job of a film critic and why it's hard for me to accept a, a film critic's opinion in general because it is their job to remove, reveal films. And right. with that comes watching a lot of films every day of the week, basically. And that's your job. And you're watching multiple movies every day probably. Um, and that gets exhausting. And gets exhausting. And I'm and sure you're not giving a, a true, real review of a movie that a normal moviegoer would you're not, you're see. Not, you know, you're not review, let, letting a movie in sink thing. in the same way uh, a regular An average movie moviegoer goer would let a movie sink in because you're seeing so many movies consecutively that it's kind of... It's exhausting. It's, you may not actually view... It's it, hard for you to... Process all process that, that. For your mind to process all that, you it, know. You know, um, Clint Eastwood, I, perfect example. He was talking about when he was um, he was one of the judges at the Cannes Film Festival. He was, I think, the president of the, the judges at the time or whatever it's called. And um, he was talking about how they were watching a lot of movies. Le chef de jury, maybe. I don't know. He was talking about he was talking about how they were watching a lot of films and how exhausting it was to watch a lot of films because some of them were good and he said some of them were okay and there were a couple that were not so good. But he said the overall sense of everybody on the jury was that like, oh my God, when this is getting a little monotonous here, you know? Right. Um, now, so who knows how their opinions were affected. But I will say though, when a film really is a standout, then it doesn't matter how many movies you watched before that because Clint Eastwood does say, you know, we were watching all these movies, but then one of the, the second to last movie they saw, it was on the last day they saw Pulp Fiction and they were like, immediately, they immediately within the first 10 minutes, they were like, this is truly something special. And one of the judges turned around to Clint Eastwood and says, said, this is it. This is the best movie of the festival. Um, and he knew it within like 10 minutes because it, it was that unique of a film. Um, or no matter how monotonous a festival can get. And this is why I don't like going to music festivals because it's just too much music. But the standouts really, no matter how exhausted you are, if it's captivating enough, it will no, no matter what captivate you. But perhaps I, I would argue that a film reviewer is a little different because they're not, they're, 
their 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 hand turns from thumbs up to thumbs down it's so um fickle actually you know because it could it could be a slight thumbs up and that would be great for a film to be able to quote that on their press releases oh this got a thumbs up from Roger Ebert you know even if it was a moderate thumbs up and that that fickleness of his thumb just going it could move down ever so slightly you know it that could that could happen because Roger Ebert's mood after watching so many other films might have been a little different if if that movie were the instead of if that movie were the first film he watched in in that I know but you just said like for instance in the Cannes Film Festival Pulp Fiction was with the second last day no, you're not understanding what I'm saying I you're you're talking about a separate point I get it it's not you're yeah it's I'm not talking about standout films. I think the standout films are going to be recognized no matter what. Right. I get what you're saying. But with films that really rely on the film reviewers' reviews to help boost its box office success and its popularity, especially action films that are not going to be like, there's always going to be like, holes or not always but there's going to often be holes in them hey, i get it um, i get what you're saying yeah do you understand that yes i i understood from the start you didn't have to why you why you what are you what are you trying to say I, all i'm saying is nevertheless uh you know standout films will just stand out and this is a good point actually like for instance last year we were saying uh, while it may have been more important for Moonlight to have won the Academy Award for Best Picture, just on a political level, uh, truly the best movie of the year, at least for us, was La La Land. And the reason is, if I were watching a, a movie full, a, a festival full of movies, and let's say those are the last two movies I saw, in my opinion, if I saw Moonlight, uh, I might view that as more boring because I was exhausted. My mood might have been not into watching that movie and I might have reviewed that in a uh, a more negative light even though I even though that's not probably how I truly felt about the film because I didn't I didn't go to a movie festival to watch that film and I actually liked that film a lot. But well, La La, lot, I didn't I didn't love it. I thought it was a good movie. Right, though. sure, 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 sure. But I like. I, I thought La it was. La Land I thought is, it was a really good movie. I thought it was a really good movie. But La La Land, though, in my own personal feeling, if I watched that, and it was like the last film I saw, and amongst a lot of films that I watched and for about throughout the week, I think that I would still have enjoyed that just as much as if I watched that as, as a lo- alone, like a regular movie goer. Because it just stood out in that way, and it was exciting and captivating. Here's you know, in that the mar- sense marker, me. basically. Moonlight, I don't care to ever watch that movie a second time. La La Land, I saw it twice while it was still in the theaters, and I'm going to see it again probably more. It's a fun movie to watch. Right. Um, and I think there's something to be said about a movie's rewatchability. I think the best movies are ones that, you do want to see multiple times, you know? And Pulp Fiction is a good example, actually. I mean... Whenever it's on TV, whenever you're, it's on always, TV, you're not going to turn away from yeah, it. Yeah, you just... That opening scene is really a captivating scene. The music, the way the music is used. Just the title screen is a really captivating thing to see, you know? Um, using my uh, Miserloo, or Miserloo, sorry. Um, 
Dick Dale, right? Dick Dale, yeah. I mean, it's it's a great film. Um, probably one of the best of all Think time. Think about the best know? movies, Shawshank Redemption. Anytime it's on, and it's on a lot, I'll always watch it. I haven't actually just rewatched it a couple weeks ago. It was on Netflix. I was like, man, I just want to watch this whole film again. I mean, are there any films that are my favorite films of all time where I'm just like, ah, I don't know if I would watch this right now, you know, that's it's on TV, you know? I will say Lawrence of Arabia is one of my favorite films. And it's what a bit I, of an endeavor. It's to an keep... endeavor to watch it. Although I will say I wasn't bored when it, I was watching it. It's not. It's a four-hour movie. I don't, well, didn't get bored There's once. There's an intermission. But I don't know. Maybe I would watch it if it was on TV. I don't know. Uh, I will say... Same with maybe One Flew or the Cuckoo's Nest. I might no, not. That, oh, you've seen it multiple times, though. Yeah, I know, but I might, if I was flipping through the channels and I just happened to fall on that, I might, depending on my mood, I might, even though that's one of my top five favorite films, maybe even top three, I, I might, depending on the scene that's showing, I might not want to well, continue watching it. Well, it's quite as much of a kickback and relax kind of movie, but... Well, I mean, but you know, no, I actually might. Shawshank Redemption is not a kickback, relax. It is actually. Maybe you're right. It is. It's kind a kickback and relax movie. Um, I actually would argue that one for the cuckoo's nest. I would, if I were flipping through the channels, I would probably stay on that. Maybe, maybe I'm I wrong. Maybe wa- I'm wrong. I would watch it. So uh, maybe I'm incorrect in saying what I said. Maybe because if it's not a kickback, relax kind of a thing, uh, Moonlight is not. But La La Land is kind of a thing, you know? Uh, so maybe not, I, maybe I just, should reform what I just said. I maybe I'm like, wrong in saying I that. I also feel like... What I just... Maybe I should take back what I said On a before. visceral level, La La Land is more intriguing and captivating. Sure. I mean, we can go through that. But the argument that we were making was... Um, no, depending but that's on your why... Mood, that's why it's, depending on your mood, you may not watch something. Because if it is more of an... You know, Moonlight might be a little bit more... Some might say... A, a little bit more of emotional endeavor so, for a some heavier people. film. It's a heavier film. Uh, you may not be in the mood to do that. So, uh, in that sense, uh, maybe I will rescind well, what I just said. Actually, well, no, but La La Land also, you know, uh, uh, there's a lot in it. There's a lot of underlying themes in it. I know, but it's not a but heavy film. It's not a heavy film. And for the last montage scene of the film even though there's a lot of symbolism going on and themes going on, you can just enjoy it on a visual and visceral level and you don't need to actually think about it. You right, can just enjoy it and that's what I mean what's is like, about it. Back to the Future 2, one of my favorite films of all time. I will just sit and watch that. It's kick back, relax. You know, it is one of my favorite of all time. That's a bad example. Uh, all right. Well, anyway, we're, we're not we're getting way off topic. Sure, sure. We're, we let's get back let's on end this stuff. thing. I wanted to say so that's the problem ultimately with film critics is that they're reviewing so many movies um that and the movies really depend on the reviews for to achieve a level of success. And so when their their grading system is so fickle especially for a mediocre film that might have been, they might have watched at the end of the week after watching so many films. It's kind of unfair to that film. Um, you know, and that's the problem in, with, with film critics in general. 
including Siskel and Ebert. You know, who knows what their frame of mind was when they watched the Big Lebowski or when they watched one for Taxi when one Gene Siskel watched Taxi Driver for the first time. But even though for me that would be a very a standout film, anyway, who knows? Ultimately, though. <clears throat> That's goes no matter that, how, but that goes with any criticism. You know, a, a, please, a, let, okay. a music reviewer has to listen to so many freaking songs, you know. It's, Ultimately, though, I do think that Siskel and Ebert at the movies, very fun show to watch because it's a show that gets into analyzing a topic that I care about very much, um, and that is film. And, and it's fun, and it's funny, and fun and to watch fun. these... Uh, you know, these self kind of dry kind of guys, self important guys talk self important self. Yeah. Self important doing something that is somewhat self indulgent actually. Um, um, talk about film and, and they have these witty remarks at times too. And, um, yeah. and, uh, I would say the best episodes is when they disagree with each other. Um, but also, yeah, it's, <coughs> When you agree with them, it reinforces your own opinions about them, and that's what's great about it. And I actually recently watched an episode where they, a couple episodes where they were reviewing video games, the latest video games that were coming out, and that was funny to watch too, you know, because there were these old timers who didn't grow up with video games, so it was it was just funny to watch them review that. Anyway, any last words? Um, you know, at the movies, it's fun times. Fun times. I recommend. They got so many clips about the movies with Siskel and Ebert on, on YouTube. YouTube. And in fact, their their site doesn't work anymore. Actually, that they used to have all the all the clips of them. Start start watching. I would. I recommend starting with the 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 episode where they review Full Metal Jacket because it's funny to see their argument about it, you know, and getting into uh, Benji the Hunted afterward. But what's the one that they they have that little crack? He, where Siskel says, "I the, the movie was so boring to him, he said, I'd much rather have watched a two-hour still of you, Roger, in the shower. And, and then Roger Ebert quips back and he says, oh, I'm glad you're thinking about me or something like that. And he's like, no, no, I was just fantasizing. And he didn't mean it in that way. And Roger was like, fantasizing? Well, I didn't know you were having he's fantasies like, oh, about me. Thank you. Uh, it's it's so they. Can I don't be remember. Funny. But I don't remember what episode that was. But I think the Full Metal Jacket one is. Uh, it's a notorious one, actually. So you should watch that episode. It's a good one. Um, so yeah, it's a fun show. Get into it, especially if you like talking about film and analyzing film. And if you like this podcast, if you, you actually like it. this podcast, then you might enjoy watching that that show. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Splitting Hairs with Max and Nikki. Tune in next time. 